Warning. You're about to hear unfiltered insights about regenerative agriculture and our sovereign right to natural food. This is not just a podcast, but a patriotic movement against the tide of food ignorance and corporate food giants shaping our modern food system. It's time to feed the people. What up, AJ? What's up, Brooks? How you doing, brother? Checking in from Memphis. All is well. Where are you checking awesome. in from today? Today I'm in St. George, Utah, so my second home. I'm all over the place, but that's where I'm at today. <laughs> and we have another guest. Welcome yes, Jeff we Smith to the show. How you doing, Jeff? How you doing, boys? I'm doing good. Where are you awesome. checking in from today? Checking in from my office on the fifth generation ranch, uh, 110 years old this year. Uh, and actually the original homestead that was founded in 1913 by my wife's great, great grandfather is about a quarter mile over my right shoulder. Dang. So awesome. That is awesome. Jeff, I'm glad to have you here, brother. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Thank you very much for taking the time. Yeah. We've been, uh, connected for a while. I think I was still in Cody working at legacy when we first connected and, um, you guys have some really cool things and exciting stuff going on up there in Colorado country. Um, yeah, why don't you we've been talking for yeah. a couple of years now, haven't we? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I don't even remember how you first came on the radar for me, but just, uh, I mean, we're kind of in the same, I mean, we are in the same region. You're just one state over from, from where I am, whether I'm in Cody or down here in St. George, we're you're still just one state over. So mm-hmm. we're neighbors and it's exciting to connect with people that are in the ag space, still going strong and, working against, uh, you know, working against the gravity or against the grain that, that we have to do as agriculture people. So for sure, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, you and your, your, your family and what you've been up to and give us a little background about Colorado craft and where it came from. Yeah. So a uh, little introduction for me. Uh, I did the smart thing. I married up. Uh, I am not a rancher's dog. I'm not a rancher's son or a rancher's daughter for that matter. <laughs> my dad was a uh, department of defense for the entirety of, of his career after he got out of the Navy, uh, when he was in Vietnam. Um, my mom grew up in Oregon. My dad grew up in Oregon. And consequently I was born in Pendleton, Oregon, home of Pendleton whiskey, the Pendleton roundup. Uh, that is, that is my stomping grounds. So grew up in a very agricultural community working in everything ag. So, uh, you know, running on hay crews, running on harvest crews, gathering cattle in the mountains of Oregon, uh, usually doing most of that in trade for hunting access to river ground or elk mountain range. You know, it's a ton of different ways you can work the system, <laughs> especially when you're 16, you don't have any money. You can yeah. trade time for good hunting ground. Nice. Uh, but since I was a kid, I've always been a numbers guy. It's, I've always been a why and a puzzle type person. And then I realized that numbers are really cool when you put that little S with a slash through it in front of them. Uh, so I went to college at Colorado State University. I have a degree in agricultural business with minors in finance and accounting. Uh, left college, well, graduated. I got to point that out. You know, didn't, didn't fail out for all the beer, but 
you know, had a good time anyway. <laughs> I was actually a Cargill guy. I don't know if you know that. I was a Cargill manager for the Didn't first two that. and a half years I was out of college. Uh, so I was in the grain sector for a long time before um, I got into the private equity space. Uh, I was with Cargill for a couple of years in Minnesota and Nebraska, uh, ran big shuttle loading terminals. So we loaded, you know, 400,000 bushels of corn on a truck, on a rail and sent it to New Orleans or Seattle or to a sweetener plant somewhere. And I was in strictly the operations side. Uh, So, you know, running a crew of, you know, a certain number of guys and moving, you know, millions of dollars of product a week and not a bad job right out of college. Mm -hmm. Makes you realize how small you really are in the grand scheme of things. Uh, But Cargill was interesting because watching how they operate and seeing the big side of business right out of the gate gave me an interesting perspective uh, that I was able to build on. And in 2007, I moved back to Oregon, uh, did some capital project work, uh, doing some big renovations, went to work for a construction company. Uh, we did earthwork, underground utilities, and a lot of concrete and surveying. Uh, I was kind of the head project manager, head estimator, general manager of sorts. Uh, did that until 2013 uh, when I met my wife, or the person who's now my wife. She was living in Boise at the time. Uh, and I took a job with a company called the Bratney company. They're out of Iowa. Uh, they sell a lot of ag processing equipment in the grain space. So seed and grain facilities, automated packaging. Uh, I did work at like Bentonite mines up in Eastern Wyoming in the cat litter space, all Hmm. sorts of weird, goofy stuff Yeah, that makes you see the intricacy that makes this orchestra of a food system or really just how daily life works happen. Mm -hmm. And you learn where corners are cut. You learn where that's efficiency or just sheer greed. You get to really understand that process at a macro, micro level and everything in between. Uh, So in my time with Bratney, I did work in Europe. I did work in South America. And so now you start to see ag in in an intercontinental level. And you start to learn the regulations that people deal with elsewhere and then, you know, labor issues you deal with elsewhere and that ag experience in that level, you know, you're one day you're in a corporate boardroom in Minneapolis at Land Lakes headquarters. Um, so any of the uh, forage genetics, uh, low lignin alfalfa comes out of a plant I helped sell in Napa, Idaho, and was very integral in the build out of that. Um, mm. So now you understand, you know, where that side works. And then you understand as a kid that grew up in ag that this is how hay gets through the system. And then you work with a hay, a hay compressor in Washington that's shipping everything to Japan. And, and, and everybody's like, well, this is the system. I'm like, no, man, you're missing like four steps forward and back of where you're currently standing. <laughs> and I don't say that with any judgment. Uh, I, I just always ask questions. And, you know, chase the dragon of understanding ag, which is really what it is, right? You know, what is ag? Well, ag where? Let's Mm -hmm. talk one commodity and where you grow it and how it moves from there. And that model is probably totally different two states away. Uh, And then when I left Bratney, so I left Bratney in 2019 and actually went into private equity, Uh, went into the investment space working for some people that have degrees from Harvard and MIT and Brown. So I was the dumbest guy in every conversation by far. The most interesting part was they were exceptionally good at the modeling. They were very good on the finance side or operationalizing a business, 
but they love to invest in agriculture and the variability of ag. You know, if you take a full on financial input model of any ag operation, you know, how much variability is on every line of that spreadsheet? Mm. 10 to 20% in a good year Mm -hmm. times 20 or 30 lines. It doesn't take long to be in the red. Uh, So my job in private equity was to understand the math they were trying to make happen and then understand if it was functional. (laughs) Can this spreadsheet become a business plan? Can we execute on the model that makes the math work? Um, And when you take all of that experience, it creates a profile in my brain that I have a lot of fun with, (laughs) which is one of the reasons I love talking to other producers like you and I have both spent a lot of time on the phone helping other producers, man. Like, Oh, you're in wherever you're in Eastern Kentucky. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, and this person will tell me I want to ship nationally. Like why? A third of the population lives straight North of you. You should never ship to Washington because you can't compete with me or AJ. No, I'm not and your saying, margins that you're going to lose in shipping and everything else, you're just going to eat up your potential profits. Yeah, and that's assuming it it moves correctly. Right. Because the risk is it doesn't move correctly and you have no insurance on the package and you're wasting product. Uh, you know, for those of us near the middle of the country, you know, like, you know, you mentioned you're one state away. Well, you might as well be on another planet because going over the mountains is a pain. Yep. I mean, the mountains <laughs> yeah. create this natural geographic change. Um which if we ship ground to California, depending on the packaging we use, that's great. Unless there's fires in the Colorado mountains, unless Mm -hmm. there's a snow, unless there's snow, uh, which route do they go? You have to learn the system of where they're shipping stuff to. But luckily my experience from operations and sales and general management and then the equity side came together in such a way that when we started craft beef, uh, we went at it, a little differently, I think, than a lot of the other direct-to-consumer folks. Mm. Uh, so we started Colorado Craft Beef in 2017. We shipped our first product in 2018. And when I say we started it, let me clarify that. My wife and I founded the company. We bootstrapped the entire thing. And while she is fifth generation on this ranch, the ground that I am sitting on right now is ours. We bought it with our money. Nothing is generationally handed down. And as we've built this company, we've bootstrapped the whole thing until just recently with uh, some business expansion we've done that I'm sure we'll talk about. And quite frankly, I think if we were to have tried to do it generationally, you know, Kara's dad still runs the commercial ranch, which starts 70 yards that way at the fence line going east or going west. I don't think it would have worked mm. because of the amount of capital required, you know, if you go in and you say, okay, you know, we burned up the first X amount of money. We're still growing. We're reinvesting profits. How are we going to do this? About the second time that I had that conversation, with my father-in-law had been like, uh, no, this is a horrible idea. <laughs> but as you know, you have to get to a scale mm-hmm. that becomes a business, not a hobby. Yeah. Um, so, so let me ask you questions there and, and we'll get into more of this because you've, you've shared a lot that that's kind of rolling through my head. First of all, you are a numbers guy and yet you still chose to get into ag and sell beef, which means you saw some silver lining that if things were done a little bit different, you could actually make this pencil out. Yep. Uh, and that ties into what you were saying about your father-in-law because tradition is really hard, right? It's, what do they say? The sixth, 
I'm gonna mess this up. But the six most dangerous words in ag is it's how it's always been done. Yeah, hundred hundred percent. Right, and so like in my own family, they're fifth generation ranchers, and and by this time everybody's cow calf. But you go back two generations, and it was not cow calf. I mean, it might have been on some level, but it, there was still local trade, right? Mm-hmm. M- maybe three generations back, but now this many generations in, it's like we know of our great grandparents, but we don't know them. We don't know what they did and how they thought and what practices they put into place. So we only know what, you know, dad did and maybe what grandpa did if he was around. And that was typically not finishing beef out and taking responsibility or control of your own supply chain. So what was that conversation like with your, your extended family, your father-in-law, like, Hey, we want to do this. And how, what did you see that was possible there to do it differently coming from your, your background? Sure. Um, well, there was a couple different things that really drove this one. Of course, I can look at the general model of my father-in-law, who's a stalker operator, mm-hmm. like to be totally clear, nobody in my wife's family or us have owned mother cows in 50 or 60 years. Okay. We're in the sand hills. We're not yeah. set up for mother cows. Yeah. I mean, one of our best friends is four miles south of here. He has mother cows, but he has hay fields. Okay. Now you can grow cheaper. You can grow cheap, cheaper feed. Most of the cow calf guys in our region, which I, I mean, if we go 50 miles one direction, that's barely a region in ag. Like that's probably too far. Because mm-hmm. uh, if you go a little further east, now you're on the Ogallala Aquifer. Mm-hmm. Everybody's growing corn over there. Yeah. So we're in this little zone kind of between Denver and real farming um, where we have a lot of grass at the right time of year, but our sandy soils at the ranch, especially where we're at, don't allow for mother cows. Like we don't have hard packed like valley bottoms where Mm -hmm. you can feed hay all year and not turn it into a complete sand dune. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And there's nothing we can do with that. Right. Like, uh, if we want to use some of the regenerative language, you know, do we change the soil type? Well, no, <laughs> yeah. you can't change the soil type. Mother nature put that here and there's not a lot we can do with it because it's surely a math problem. There's just too much. What, how do you change sand to clay? Right. You don't. Right. Um, and the family hasn't far, the family tried farming here. Uh, and I believe the last time any dirt was turned at this place was in the sixties. Mm. So if you go back and look at the dust bowls during the great depression, a lot of those Dust Bowl pictures were Eastern Colorado, Southeastern Colorado, Southern Kansas, Oklahoma. And it's that same sandy type where it gets too dry. You don't hold the root structure together and things start to blow. Mm. Well, if you, if you ever get out to the ranch, AJ, we'll go look at it yeah. <laughs> because it's a hundred percent that thing. <laughs> um, but man, the Platte River is 10 miles North of here. So yeah. What do you do 10 miles from here? Oh, you got all the irrigation you want. Yeah. Yeah. But what a unique context, like you're saying with your geographic location. Yeah. Uh, Just to just real quick before you move on, when you say, because a lot of our audience are um, so new to ag, right? That's been the purpose of this mission is to get people connected with their, where their food comes from and how it's sourced. Sure. Feeder cattle. Mm -hmm. Uh, Break that down just briefly. So that yeah, they know so, what you're talking about. So there's there's four sectors in the beef chain. We have cow-calf operators. People have a mother herd like R.C. Carter. Um, he runs it from there uh, going forward. We pick up in the second layer of the chain. So we pick up in the feeder slash stalker operator category. 
And the reason they call it the stalker category is because you're stalking pastures with cattle in the summer because that is your least expensive gain per pound when they're out on natural natural grass. Mm-hmm. So uh, past the feeder and stalker sector, which probably 60% of cattle go into that sector. Um, some cow-calf guys calve early enough that by the time you get to weaning, they're too big to be on grass the next summer, and they go immediately to the feed yard. Okay. Uh, those are called those are called calf feds. So most of the system goes into the stalker sector, probably 30 to 40% actually break out and go straight to calf fed. But, you know, if we think about it mathematically, we have to harvest beef year round or people don't eat. Right. So while the calf feds are not as, they aren't as big, so they aren't going to yield as well. They probably aren't going to grow the frame you want. Um, they don't maybe see grass. Um, that's, that's, you know, common for more of the commercial guys, the big guys, because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, these were cheaper. Where, you know, it's interesting, the math on weaned calves, you will pay literally the same amount per head in our region for a 700-pounder in October as you do a 500-pounder. I was going to ask you because I just saw some reports, and I'm, I'm new to some of like, I kind of know everything outside of the feeder side, mm-hmm. you know, front and back your world in that middle is something that's still pretty foreign to me. So we saw sell prices the other day where 450 weights, a cow that is 450 pounds mm-hmm. sold for more than one that was 700. And I'm like scratching my head. Like why? I would think that it would be cheaper to get them across the finish line now, but from what you're saying, that sounds like exactly what you're saying. It's yeah. So a typical model, which is what Colorado craft beef does. Uh-huh. Um, our typical cattle model. We source smaller calves in October, November. Sometimes we will source a little smaller calves after the first of the year. The nice thing is when you buy, you know, a truckload or two, you end up with some natural variability. So if you buy a 500 weight truck, there's going to be a hundred calves on there and they're going to weigh between 400 and 600 pounds. Gotcha. Um, so we will source calves because like I said, we don't have a mother cow herd. We will source the calves and we source them based on our health protocols. The, ma- the vast majority of the time when we are buying calves, we knew we were buying those calves before they hit the ground. Mm-hmm. And we have, di- we have dictated health protocols. My wife is actually, my wife has a master's in cow nutrition. So her decade in a classroom, you know, kind of dwarfs anything I'm going to be able to add to the conversation about <laughs> that. Um, she dictates health protocols. We bring calves in in the fall. We have a grow yard, a small grow yard that we own and control. The calves live at the grow yard from October until April or December until April, whenever they come in. And in April, the grass turns green. Mm-hmm. We start getting rain. We start to get heat units. The grass starts to come out of dormancy. Cattle get turned out in April. Okay. And cattle will be turned out until the rain stops, Got which it. traditionally is August to October. Okay. Um, this year we shipped in October. Uh, I know in 2014, no, 2012, nasty drought out here. My father-in-law was shipping cattle the 4th of July. They were out for less than seven weeks. Oh man. Big problem. Big economic yep. swing. Um, what is so that the real reason, quick? What is that? What's the downstream effects of that? Like, so the people understand what that means. Uh, it means that cattle are ready early. So Mm -hmm. they shouldn't be coming off pasture until August, September, October. 
Um, and then you have to think about the geographical movement because cattle in Texas start moving before cattle in Kansas, before cattle in Colorado. Same thing as the wheat harvest. The wheat harvest starts in South Texas in like May and it mm-hmm. finishes in October in Canada. So those custom harvest crews, they fire up the first part of the summer or really late spring and they travel north until October and then they go home. Hmm. So you have to think of how the seasons move. You have to think about where you're growing. Like you can run that from Texas to Saskatchewan because you're going straight north. Well, if you try to do that same straight north movement from Florida to Maine, that's a totally different sector and you're only 400 miles east. Yeah. So a lot of those geographic things just people can't wrap their head around. So like, well, this is the process. I'm like, well, everything in ag is a process with a little star next to it. Yeah. Um, so to your point about, you know, weaned calves coming off that are 450 or 700, why are they worth less per pound when they're bigger? Well, the big point, the big reason is if you take that 450 pound calf and you put them in a grow yard for the winter and you grow them and what we're growing, you know, when they're in our facility, we're giving them a balanced ration that's PhD nutrition certified that is designed to help them grow frame. We don't want them to get big. We want frame. We want muscle. We want expansion. We, we're basically maturing them, if mm-hmm. you will, so that when they go out in April, they are ready to go eat grass. Their body type is that, that they aren't going to actually back up. Like you don't want them too fleshy. Um, but if you take a seven weight, they need to go on feed because you can't get them to grass because they'll be too big. Yeah, got it. So so the big commercial guys, you know, JBS or Cargill or whoever the big guys around us are, which they're all around here because mm-hmm. we're in cattle feeding country, those guys will buy all the seven weights, but they buy them for a little less money because they're going to gain a little slower because they haven't got that chance to mature naturally. Because mm-hmm. um, the, the big metric in cattle, if you want to be a math guy, is rate of gain. Average daily gain. So in a grow yard for a 450-pound calf, we're going to try to target that about a pound and a half to two pounds a day. So we're not pushing them. They're just hanging out. Everything's good. Just living at a bed and breakfast. Mm -hmm. And then they turn out in April. They'll go on grass. And mind you, when they're in that grow yard, it's about $3 a head a day depending on feed rates. We turn them out on grass, you're paying about 20 cents a head a day and they're gaining about 2.2 to 2.3 pounds a day on grass. We want them on grass as long as possible (laughs) because it's the best thing for them. Like Mm -hmm. everybody that says, oh, everybody wants them in a feed yard. No, man, feed yards are expensive. Mm -hmm. If we take a calf and we put it on a finish ration, you're four to five dollars a day. Yeah. Well, if that calf was on pasture for an extra month and got bigger he's going to hit the natural endpoint faster and he's going to be less total cost at the end of the day. Makes sense. Um, and now there's a lot of people that will hammer you. Oh, you're talking about them like they're a machine. Well, I love cows. I have a good time. I have literally bled for my cows like this. Eyes all cut up. So I hit with a gate a couple of years ago. They are a machine. They yeah. convert non arable farm ground which all the, everything around us is non arable. You can't grow grass or you can't grow anything, but native grasses on it. It's non farmable. They convert what nature provides us on that grass into steak. Mm-hmm. That's the best machine ever. Yeah. Um, you know, like the picture behind me over my right shoulder, you know, that's my wife a quarter mile from here on a horse in a grass pasture. 
That's what we do. That's what we've done forever. My wife's great grandfather's saddle sits above our bedroom door in a nook that we built when we bought the place. Um, Awesome. And actually, if you haven't seen any of those grass ropes, you got to find some of those. They're pretty cool. Old hand woven grass ropes. What? Pretty legit. And once you get them wet, they're dog shit, but before (laughs) that, they're okay. Um, So back to the sectors. So we have the feeder sector, and that's the feeder slash stalker sector. Most people call it the yearling sector because we're trying to get them to a yearling before they go to the feed yard. Mm. Um, Then you go into the feed yard space. And the feed yard space can have any number of different things. So I mentioned a grow yard. Yep. Grow yard and feed yard are kind of interchangeable terms, but it's more utilized to those of you that really want to know what we're talking about. We have grower rations. We have finisher rations. Mm-hmm. So it's what what uh, what operation are we working on with those particular cattle? Are we growing them or are we finishing them to go to harvest? So when we so when I say a feed a feed yard, I'm talking about going to finish, you know, 100 to 140 days at the end of their life cycle. When Mm -hmm. they come off grass, they go to the feed yard. At that point, they start getting concentrate rations, also formulated by a licensed nutritionist. And if we talk back to the math, well, let's finish the sector. So feed yards, you can have something as small as ours, which is exceptionally small. Um, Yeah, we, we, we do run the same equipment as some of the big guys. But that's because I'm not going to feed them with a bucket. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, if you've got it, you should use it because it makes the work a lot easier. Well, and we have to think of it all as an investment. You know, how much yeah. infrastructure do you need? And then you can't do it all yourself. Mm-hmm. So we have a great feed yard manager. Love the guy to death. Do you think he's going to stick around if he has crap equipment? If he's a mechanic instead of a feed yard manager, he's probably not going to be there anymore. Right. So, you know, some of the technology we're able to utilize in there, you know, we're in a genome. Well, we'll talk on the craft side about that later. Everything is Bluetooth connected. Everything is cloud-based. The scale heads on the feed truck are linked into an iPad that rides with you in the loader. So, you know, exactly what you're loading. Everything Mm -hmm. is, I mean, down to a mineral pack they get every day down to the pound. It is optimized and it is optimized for animal health. Uh, That is the one thing the feed yard space gets a lot of heat on. So you're trying to grow them as fast as possible. That's really not the case anymore. Um, people have learned in the feed yard space, growing them as fast as possible can be economically viable. You know, mm-hmm. i.e. some of the big, the big feeders that, you know, have 50 or 60 or 80,000 head in their yard. But at our scale, you know, as small as we are, I don't want to, I don't want to maximize. I don't want to hammer those cattle. That doesn't work for us. Um, especially, you know, with the beef company, we're trying to hit a certain size animal that grades really well, that gives the eating experience the customer is after. So we're very moderated in how we get to that finish point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like even in our system, our, our feed yard manager puts in everything that's happening every day. If there's anything going on, you know, it, it's very tightly managed. Um, and, to be fair, and I, I've said this on some other podcasts, one of our very good friends runs a very, very big yard for Simplot up in Idaho. Uh-huh. I think that yard holds 120,000 cattle. Holy it's moly. a monster. She is the cattle manager for that. Wow. She and I were talking one day. She loves cows as much as my wife does, which is pretty hard to do. And I said, man, what do you think? You know, people rail on feed yards. What do you think? You're, I think it's one of the three biggest in the country. Hmm. And she goes, 
you want to know the best part about being at a big feed yard? I said, send it what you got. She said, I have the best budget to make things right for the cattle because I get a small percentage of everything to make the quality as good as possible for their life cycle and everything else. I was like, man, I can't argue that. Mm -hmm. She's like, I have the best budget to make things as good as possible. And I'm required to do that because at that scale, you have so many eyes on you. You have to do it well. Yeah. Which was an interesting way for me to look at that. Yeah. Because, you know, I've been to big feed yards and I'm like, man, how do you make this appealing? <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that, that there's all, it's like the conversation between feed lots versus grass fed and finished, you know, those mm -hmm. conversations. And what people really need to understand is we've got an estimated 295 million mouths to feed that eat meat in this country. Mm -hmm. And we don't have the ground anymore to do it all on grass. Like there's just, it's not possible to feed our population just grass fed and finished. So customers have options. Also the cost for grass fed and finished beef is much higher and not a lot of people can afford that. Mm -hmm. um, there's a really good book called uh, Sacred Cow that was written yeah. by um, Rob and Diana. Great Rob and people. Diana. Yeah. And they, yeah. you know, they said in the beginning, like we set out to prove that grass fed and finished beef was better because that's what we believed. Mm -hmm. But ultimately through doing the research and seeing the data, there was no, there wasn't a large enough difference in the nutrient value between grass fed and finished and feedlot beef to discourage the consumption of beef, that the, the value of red meat is so incredible regardless that mm -hmm. don't decide, well, I'm going to go eat tofu because I can't eat grass fed and finished beef. Like, no, you should eat red meat. Now I will say that I, I have seen data change from other finishing programs like regenerative, but, mm -hmm. but that's even more money. And, and you have to have a pretty decent amount of disposable income or not do anything else as hobbies to afford regenerative beef. And if you do that, great, good for you. I, I'm a supporter of the regenerative beef side, but mm -hmm. for the average person listening, because Jeff, one of the biggest questions I get from people with this whole shake the hand of Fiji movement is, can it be more affordable? I can't afford it now. How can it be more affordable? And I tell them, find your local producer who's, doing a corn and grain finished beef because, and really I think, and you might be able to correct me, but your time of finishing is months shorter than fattening straight grass. And so there's some economics of scale or, or value there. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, on that? Because that is a big question, grass fed and finished versus feedlot. And, but then as you said in the beginning to the complexities of the ag space, they don't just end at the process of getting meat to the table. Mm -hmm. It's, it's in every aspect of, at every angle of this. Sure. Um, well, to the math side of things, cause that's usually where my brain goes. Yeah. You know, if we have cattle on grass at the prime time of year, if they're gaining two to 2.4 pounds a day, that is outstanding. I've seen okay. it as low as 1.6. Okay. And you are at the mercy of mother nature. Now, if you're Will Harris and you're in Georgia and you get 40 inches of rain, and by the way, no knock on Will. I love what Will's doing. And I, I actually sent him an email the first time he went on Rogan. I called White Oak. I got I got his email, and I just sent him a thank you. Cool. Because the way he talks about agriculture, regenerative or not, 
he understands the system. You know, yeah. if, if you listen to his first uh, interview on Rogan, he talks about the guy that's involved in the cotton space can't move the cotton space. So go listen to that. It's a great, great share on that. Um, but if we can take cattle from grass where we're at, when that grass goes naturally dormant and there's really no nutritional value anymore, right? I mean, it's yeah. there, it yeah. sticks. Yeah. Um, you could feed hay. That's not without cost. Uh, you have to have the right soil type. You have to right, have the right area. Um, but if we can take those yearling cattle, because all we're doing is fed beef. Mm-hmm. We aren't, we aren't wintering cows. You can winter cows on pasture all day long. Mm-hmm. Finishing beef on pasture, especially where we live, man, you better pack a lunch. Yeah. And uh, there's a whole litany of things to talk about with that. Right. But if we can take those cattle in September and move them to the feed yard, I know exactly what they're eating every day. I monitor their health more closely because we're seeing them all the time. We monitor the water. We actually do water samples to understand mineral content like everybody should be doing. Even on your pastures, any producer listening, you should understand the micronutrients in your water, the micro minerals. Um, But we know exactly what they're eating and it's monitored every day. And we can take that calf that in a poor time of year is graining 1.5 on grass and they can go to 3.2 or 3.5 in a feed yard. Mm. So we're producing twice or more product per day. Okay. That's interesting. Math is interesting. And year round, which is crucial because if you relied solely on grass, guess when they're not producing beef? Well, so to your point about when are they going to be ready? Mm -hmm. I don't know, man. Because if we take a yearling that we turn out that's just over a year old in April, they aren't, they might be a thousand pounds by the end of the summer. That is nowhere near finished. Mm-hmm. Well, now they're going to back up all winter long mm. and maybe catch it again next spring. So what do you do? Like what, how do you physically make that work? Like I was, I listened to your episode with RC and I have a ton of respect for that guy. I mean, living in 10 sleep is a chore in and of itself, <laughs> yeah. um, but maybe he's got it figured out, right? There's nobody to bother him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, even he talks about having irrigation. Mm-hmm. He's like, and most guys would do corn, but we didn't. I'm like, man, that's outstanding. We don't have an irrigated acre on our whole place. And yeah. I mean the family place. Um, so you just have to understand the complexity of all the different things. Absolutely. Um, if you are able to strictly grass finish, you know, you're in Arkansas, Alabama, wherever, you might get two pounds a day. So that calf is probably going to be six to ten months older. And that is where uh, I'd have to go find the data. So anybody that has their pitchfork, shoot me an email. I'll find it for <laughs> you. Uh, I believe it came from a friend of ours that works for the Meat Export Federation. Uh, grain finished beef has a 67% lower carbon footprint than grass finished. Hmm. Is the statement from the Meat Export Federation because actually this is the fun part, talking to my wife, the nutritionist, you know, the carbon and the methane that comes from cows is typically the regurgitation to chew their cut. It's burps. It's not farts. Right. Uh, obviously, AOC still doesn't know that. But <laughs> but once they go to a concentrate ration, their roughage is cut down. They're releasing exceptionally lower levels of methane. Hmm. And they're done sooner. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Although this is a fun one for you. I'll have to find this white paper. I saw a research paper the other day that said that the methane emitted by cows 
is no more than 10% more than the natural methane that would have been emitted by rotting vegetation anyway. So that argument is snow comes through my area, lays everything down. All that's all that grass lays down. It now starts to rot underneath that. The new grass grows in the spring. All that other stuff rots. It's going to release methane anyway. Yeah. I was like, man, I, I had not thought about that math. Seriously. Brooks is over here. Like his head's exploding because he's like, (laughs) and everything you talk about in ag has like seven. What ifs, uh, and that's that's my love of the game. I have such a fun time with this. What do you got to say, Brooks? You yeah. look like you got some on the tip of your tongue. Holy cow! <laughs> nice. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm the I'm the average listener. I just want to yeah. just state that to Jeff. Like, I am the average listener. Like, I'm informed to a degree. I know how supply chains work in other industries. I'm interested. I'm invested. But I've never spent any time on a ranch. I've never been out, like, understanding the system. So, as I've told every guest on here, every time I sit down to listen to a conversation between AJ and whoever is sitting down, I'm learning so much because it's – this conversation is checking some of my biases mm-hmm. and, and in a good way. Like I, it's checking some of my biases. And when you started getting to once you got to the methane differential of, uh, of rotting vegetation, that was just, I, it just completely sent me over the edge. So I'm, I'm confident that the listeners, uh, no matter their experience are taking a lot away from this. Well, the, the interesting point, so I do business consulting for, for other companies as well. If anybody says, you know, this is how my industry works, I don't believe them. <laughs> yeah. Because or it's just their industry. industry. It's just their, it, it, you don't, you just don't understand my industry. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, you know, there's no, anybody that says true or false in ag, oof, that's rough because mm. true or false on whose opinion. Right. Um, what you know, context, what, what, what breed, what genetics, what. Yeah. yeah. What's, what did this, what did this year's rain cycles do compared to last year? I mean, it's, it's always changing. Or, or you say, well, you get 12 inches of rain on average. Cool. Did it all come in March? Yeah. <laughs> did yeah. it all come in snow in the middle of winter and we had a dry spring and other grass is slow and you got to worry about coming off or lowering stocking rates. Yep. Like it's so dynamic. Well, it's like um, here in Utah, people, people, you know, uh, something that's that most people don't realize and 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 maybe it's more information than they care to really know is that a lot of guys are you know the earlier you can calve then the weights hit that right weight when it's time for the cell and and then you have a winter like we had here in utah and they had like a 20 to 40 percent calf loss mm-hmm. this year because it wasn't like the year before where it was a drought and we didn't get snow all of a sudden we got this massive snow pack from, you know, built up for 10 years. And so they're like, okay, well, let's, let's push those, those calving dates earlier because we can handle it. And then they have a winter like they've never seen. And we were at the Utah Cattlemen's and, and they, one person got up and said, we have PTSD from last winter. Like when it got, we had a cold snap, you know, a, like a month ago here or a few weeks mm-hmm. ago. And they, they acknowledged like that, and there was snow with that and they went, Oh shit. Because yeah. of what happened last year. Yeah. Yeah. The, vari- I, I the spent, variables. Yeah. I spent all winter fighting the same thing. You know, we mm-hmm. had record snowfall here. Uh, you know, we are out on the plains, so we usually don't get a lot of snow. Mm-hmm. We had a recorded five feet 
<laughs> we had snow drop like the 12th of December and it did not really all go away until like May. Wow. And in June, when we were cleaning pens at the feed yard, um, you know, moving all the manure out and spreading it on fields for the local farmers, because that's the other bad rap Brooks that everybody in the feed yard space gets is, well, you're, you're bad for the carbon cycle. You're this, that, and the other. No, man, all that manure goes to other farmers in our local region within a couple of miles and gets spread as organic fertilizer. You know, I said this the other day, and it's something that kind of has become more clear to me. Like the issue, the issue isn't so much the feedlot as it is the export or the imports. Agreed. When, when we talk about the carbon, the carbon emissions of the, of the agricultural sector and it being as high as it is, it's not the product at all. It's the supply chain as it's as it's set up. If you're shipping, you know, 920 million pounds of beef from other countries, that's the emissions. Mm-hmm. If you cow calfed and you managed your soils and your rotation or however you decided to do it effectively, so your carbon drawdown was done really well through the grasses that you had on your land, and then you sent those cattle to a feedlot, they're going to offset their own impact anyway because it's localized. You know, mm-hmm. I heard a guy say the other day, I wish I could remember his name. He goes, what if producers just cycled their own carbon credits and didn't sell them to Microsoft? Mm-hmm. They would be a net negative impact on carbon. So Microsoft, go figure out your own fucking carbon problem. Don't take it from us. Right. We will just offset all these these carbon issues that the World Economic Forum wants to claim that's happening from agriculture. Nope, because where we got our feeder cattle from, you should see their ground. You should see the carbon sequestration happening there. Mm-hmm. We just brought them across, you know, wherever they went to, put them in a feedlot to finish them to make sure people had food. But we we're a net negative because of that relationship. It's the yep. import that's the issue. Jeff, can yeah. I ask oh. you? Can I ask you a question? Sure. So uh, AJ and I have been talking about the Big Four and industrial practices and industrial meat. Um, and AJ was totally supportive of JBS, right? Right, exactly. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think he's on the board of directors, as a matter of fact. Um, so how does what you're, what I'm hearing from you about feedlots and the offset and its impact on potential climate and carbon, How where does the big four fit into that in your mind? Because to me, what I'm Uh, assessing from my limited knowledge and experience is that it's the industrial practices that seem to be causing the biggest impact. Um, I'm at Whole Foods, for example, and I see in the butcher section, oh, they have grass finished beef and it is from New Zealand. And I'm realizing like, wow, that had to travel a really long way. Maybe I should get in touch with Rhodes Farm who may finish on a feedlot uh, and, and are, you know, they come to the agri center right around the corner from my house and that I'm evaluating one versus the other. Where do the big four fit in? And do you see them as an advantage in the market? Do you see them as a challenge or a problem in the market? Where do they fit in from your side? Hmm. Well, we're going to have to unpack your term industrial practices after we, after I answer this question. Yeah. I think the big four currently are a necessary evil because mathematically, how do we feed everybody? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I support them. I wish they were not importing product. Uh, AJ and I were talking about this last week. You know, my, my one devil's advocate comment for the importing of product because I've, I've talked to some people with some of the bigger organizations. A lot of the product they're importing is lean beef to mix with our fat waste. 
because when we grain finish animals, there is additional fat on that carcass that if we don't have lean meat to mix it with, it'll go to waste. So typically they are bringing in lean product from other countries to mix with that fat and then sell. I do not think that should be labeled product of the U.S. I, I think some of that crap needs to go away because it is impactful in a negative way to the American producer. But if we take the big four and we eliminate the import question and we eliminate the morality question of wasting food product, which I think is a big one to know, and we just say they're processing cattle from the U.S. for consumption, I don't have that much of an issue with it because people have to eat. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, uh, Colorado craft beef, this is our official stance. If you're eating beef, it's still a good day. I would yeah. rather you bought mine because I like to pay my light bill. Yeah. But man, if you like AJ, buy AJ's beef. Or we've had any number of subscribers in other states around the country start buying from us, cancel their subscription and say, I found somebody more local. I'm like, hell yeah, do that. So I don't really have an issue with the big four if we isolate a couple of the big issues mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, we have to feed so many people. Could we um, even at this point in our history, could we eat, let's say we wanted a path to eliminating imports. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's even possible with the number of people in our country? Could it, could the American producers route, let's say it takes 10 years. Let's say it's take 20 years. Like, the timing, I'm, that is, it's arbitrary in my question. Do you think it would even be possible to rally herds large enough in our country to feed our country? Well, I guess the first question I would say, because I don't know enough about the math. I've not, okay. I've not built a spreadsheet on that to say, is or isn't it possible? Sure. My first question would be, do we make enough in this country to feed our country already? So mm-hmm. as I sit at my computer, I'm going to run some real quick math for anybody that wants to follow along. I'll talk through it while I run my 10 key here. The average person in the U.S. eats 78 pounds of beef a year. Okay. Uh, 300, and we have, what, 330 million people? Mm-hmm. All right. So that's 25 billion pounds. And the average fat steer, so we're just talking fed beef because I don't want to talk about the intricacies of, you know, harvesting coal cows, et cetera. The average fat steer is going to produce 450 pounds of finished product. So if we divide that 25 billion by 450 pounds per animal, that is 57 million pounds of beef. Excuse me, 57 million animals. Yeah. And currently we kill 35 million annually. So no, you cannot feed the U S with what we produce annually. Mm Mm-hmm. Is the, mean, it's the reason and that that's a, that's a cursory look at the math on the spot. So, yep. Anyway. Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> is there, is there a possibility that, uh, part of the reason that we don't produce enough is because, uh, the game has sort of been rigged to isolate smaller ranchers out of the game. I would say no, because, some of the smaller ranchers that go under, it could be a scale question. It could be a businesses practices question. It could be that they make a hundred grand a year in town and they decided that breaking ice in January sucks, <laughs> but that ground is not out of production. I mean, anywhere you drive, like you're down in Memphis today, Brooks, if you 
drive west into Missouri and you just go through some of those fields, you're not going to find a field that's just weeds, right? Everybody's using all the ground. Um, you know, if you go up into central Washington where there's hop farms and asparagus and all sorts of weird stuff, you never find dormant acreage. Um, even if you look at, you know, R.C. Carter and doing doing a lot of stuff with the BLM and uh, public ground where he lives, you don't find stuff that's not used. My, my, so, my counter argument to that would just be the fact that uh, the AUMs that the BLM puts out in the West Coast is total bullshit. Agreed. We should have the ability to run a lot more cattle. So actually, if 90% of the West wasn't run by the BLM, we might be able to. And that, that'd be might, an interesting case study for sure. Yeah. And we might even be able to stop some of the desertification of the drought that's happening through restoring local water cycles. I mean, my family's ground is a perfect example of that. When, when they went out there now, when they went out to the Arizona strip and settled that 1916 grass was stirrup high because mm-hmm. it was the natural cycles completely undisturbed and they could dry farm anything because the soil was perfectly prepared for the growth of whatever was put into it, you know, five years later, their journals changed that the rain stopped raining on a normal cycle. They Mm. couldn't grow anything anymore and things were disrupted. And then AUMs were put into place. Now, when we, when we know, when we know that in order to break down biological matter in the desert requires the rumen of a ruminating animal, because Mm. there's no moisture to do that naturally, like in the East coast, you know, or wherever there's a lot of moisture. You go find those cow pies and they are rock solid. They didn't contribute to the soil at all because mm-hmm. it's one pair per 100 acres. So it's sure. a needle in a haystack. So anyway, just some thoughts. That's I just a good, wanted to, that's a good concept. I, yeah. I like that idea. Um, I mean, we could go tinfoil hat. <laughs> I know you've got it there. And it's, it's you know, amazing. why does the federal government own all that real estate? I think sure. it's total crap. They shouldn't yeah. own that. Uh, I'll bet you could sell a lot of that and pay off a bunch of Biden's new debt. Yeah. <laughs> totally different concept. But, you know, when we start looking at all those different things, Brooks, to your question on the small producer, small producers struggle. Uh, we were actually at the Colorado Food Summit yesterday. Uh, we got invited there by CSU. Uh, we were on part of a panel that was loading dock, or it was a farm to loading dock. And it was a f- like 70 of us producers, aggregators, the whole food system was there. Like there was one school district uh, we talked to, they have 70,000 students and they're trying to ask how to buy local. I'm wow. like, well, let's talk about the math. You want to feed a half a pound of burger a week to 70,000 students. That's 35,000 pounds every week. There's mm-hmm. nobody in the state of Colorado that's not part of the big four that can begin to hit those numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you're, you know, Myers Foods, you're a food company. There's no ranchers that can probably do that because I'm running my calculator again here. 35,000 pounds a week divided by 250 pounds of burger per animal is 140 head a week. All the burger off 140 cows for that one school district. And they're like, well, we have a an internal uh, requirement that we have to be as local as possible in 10 years. They said, well, you have to understand that the institution you're running is far and away different. It's probably more complex than most producers in the, in the state. So when you have to bridge those gaps at scale, it's tough. And when you start talking to other producers that were at the meeting yesterday that grow tomatoes or peppers, or, you know, there was a couple other beef guys there. um, The, 
the ability to scale. Like we produce some beef for some local schools. They take 1,200 pounds a week, or excuse me, 1,200 pounds a month. Not that big of a lift. We yeah. can make that happen. But AJ, you've seen a lot of the a lot of the system. Mm-hmm. I bet because we got 30 days notice. By the way, they called us in July and said we want to sign the contract next month. <laughs> of course, they want to beat the pro- the price down because they're institutional. They don't have a bigger budget. Luckily, they want burgers, so you can usually move it. But what percentage of cattle producers in our region with 30 days notice could turn over 1,200 pounds of burger every month for the next nine months? No way. Maybe I can think of two or three of us that could have pulled it off. Yep. And those other two guys harvest at the facility we just bought. Mm-hmm. So yep. Yep. it's the math at scale is incredible. Mm-hmm. And with the people on this call and the people that listen to this show, you know, we control 15% of the market. Mm-hmm. I think if we controlled 30 or 40% of the market, we'd have a lot better vision to understand how you beat Goliath. But at the same time, I am worried about society. If we start risking those guys, because I don't want to see anybody go hungry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that. <clears throat> yeah, man, we're going to do a, a deep dive in an episode coming up on the Holodomor, which is what happened in Soviet Russia from 32 to Yeah, 33. the Holodomor. Yeah. yeah. And so as I'm doing the research for it, it's, you can, I'm telling you, there's some scary similarities from political decisions that were made regarding the agriculture sector specifically. So mm-hmm. the, the yeah, million, it was all the, everything they wouldn't allow to move into the region. Yeah. Yeah. Daryl Cooper did an amazing expose on all that. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I need to get that information to prepare for that. Take a look at uh, the Martyr Made podcast. Okay. Awesome. Uh, he does. He's actually, he do, now does the unraveling with Jocko. Oh, but, cool. Man, the Martyr Made podcast, it's the only thing I've ever paid for on Substack. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. that good. Man, okay, so. good to know. Because that's the thing that I'm, I'm finding is that when we say millions of people died, it was a very specific group of people. It was yeah. millions of agricultural producers that they starved out. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, if it, you took any of your own product to feed your own family, they killed you. They'd kill you. Or they let you, or they let time kill you. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and so... Yeah, there's, there's a, that'll be a full tinfoil hat episode for sure, because people are going to, it just, it deserves the, the focus. You might need a tinfoil cape for that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, dude, you guys have been up to some really cool stuff lately. Some big changes for Colorado craft beef. Tell us what you've been going on, what you got going on there. Cause I think a lot of people that listen to us will know names that you've been able to partner with and really help people source through Colorado craft beef. I'm excited for you, including you, you subtly dropped that you bought a plant and that's no small feat in this industry. I mean, so it was interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, the Genesis of craft beef, uh, started in 2015. Uh, we got ready to move back to the ranch we were living in Boise. Uh, my wife and I both had corporate jobs and in 2015, right around Christmas, we decided we were moving back here. Uh, you know, going to start a family. How else do you raise them? And I don't know how else to teach kids to be good humans than to, you know, let them spend a few days a week with a shovel. Yeah. Um, it, it's a good reminder for me every now yeah. and then, actually. <laughs> so uh, we moved back and we were having a conversation with Kara's dad. And uh, he was talking about secession planning, you know, when the time might come. 
And I asked him, I said, you know, Dave, I know enough about your business model to be dangerous. You know, can we continue that? He said, no. Hmm. Um, he's been running the family ranch since 1976. I mean, so by sheer definition, people say, is it sustainable? I'm like, I mean, it's only a half a century. Maybe we got to let the guy really work it out. But, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, he is an order buyer and he buys cattle commercially. He's very, very good at what he does. But man, he's forgotten more about the cattle industry than anybody I know knows about the cattle industry. Um, and we started kind of looking at the direct to consumer side. So when we talk about the metrics, you know, the return on capital investment is something that's a big deal when you start looking at investment. And if you own a cow herd or you're buying yearlings, you might get a 5% return on capital. So easy math. If you have $5 million to risk, you might make a quarter million. Mm-hmm. that's not a great return. Great. It'd probably be better to take $5 million to go to Vegas and punch yourself in the face and it'd probably be easier. <laughs> we'll do that next week. <laughs> next yeah. Week, yeah. That's, we'll put field trip, tinfoil yeah. hat field trip. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we started looking at some different things and we really had to do a deep dive on our skill set. So, you know, Kara is the bona fide cow nerd of the group. Um, she's loved cattle since she knew what they were. She was, she, she just loves that side of the business. Uh, we both came from corporate sales. Uh, we both have a big business background. And it's like, man, what can we do to make more with less? Mm-hmm. Um, hey, Brooks, write that down. We're going to talk about that towards the end. Do more um, with less? Do more with less. Nailed it. Um, so do we, how do we do more with less? How do we not put our family at financial, you know, risk of total financial detonation? every crop season, mm-hmm. which luckily we were fortunate enough to be able to do that. We had our own jobs in corporate America that were really lucrative, which allowed us to bootstrap craft beef with just the two of us. Um, Cause you know, to my earlier point, if I'd asked my father-in-law, Hey, we should start this company. Even if we'd have gotten past the first round of funding, you know, the <laughs> second or third time we need to reinvest probably would have been a different convo. Mm-hmm. So luckily we were able to put it together. And as we started growing, you know, COVID happened and we, we blew up during COVID. We tripled the year of COVID. Um, we started really looking at it and it's like, man, we're harvesting enough cattle. Is this really our business <laughs> or is it owned by the guy that kind of controls where we harvest cattle? Because a big part of our value proposition is the flavor of the beef. You know, we age everything for 21 days the harvest facility we've been processing at actually he was a classmate of mine at CSU. Their quality is just unmatched. The flavor is amazing. And we've had, we've had, I mean, we sell beef to other cattle producers Hmm. and some massive cattle producers that own hundreds of thousands of cows buy beef from us. Awesome. I was like, Holy cow. That's a little crazy. Yeah. Um, so in 21, I actually started talking to our harvest facility about potentially buying them. I got told no. Mm-hmm. And the second time I talked to him, I got told no. And the third time I talked to him, he said, man, what's the deal? And I, <laughs> and this is really tantamount to our business model. As I said, Hey man, I know what you guys are doing. You're very good at what you do. You're never going to go hungry. Your kids are never going to go hungry. You have a solid business. But at the end of your career, that building's going to be worth what it is right now. Mm -hmm. 
how do we work together to make everything bigger for everybody? Awesome. That, that process took about a year and we finally got a deal inked where I got the opportunity to purchase the harvest facility. Well, while our corporate jobs were decent, uh, by the time we got to, you know, 2022, I had left corporate America. Kara left corporate America at the end of 2022. Um, it's like, man, we're going to, we're going to raise some capital. Uh, started looking around in my network in the private equity space. And about July of 2022, I said, man, it, buying this with someone else's money is fine. Investing is fine. Is it really helping the mission? Mm-hmm. You know, we, the mission is to build a platform to help other people engage with agriculture, to talk through what happens at a large scale to feed everybody, because you can have a myopic view in the swamp, wherever the heck you live, but you're not going to feed anybody outside of your immediate region. And that's okay, but it's also not scalable. And quite frankly, everybody in Denver still needs to eat. So how do we make the model? How do we further the model with this next step? And I heard a podcast with some guys that, Brooks, you probably know them. AJ, I'm sure you know them. Uh, Jocko Willink and Pete Roberts. Pete is the founder of Origin. Uh, Jocko probably goes without level of introduction. If anybody wants to know, it's J-O-C-K-O. Type that in the Google machine and be ready for a ride. Mm-hmm. I heard a podcast of Pete and Jocko from way back in the day. And I'd been a fan of origin. I've been buying Jocko fuel product for a long time. I've listened to Jocko for probably more hours than anybody in this on the planet. And I listened to Pete and Jocko talk and they talked about the origin story of origin, not to make a bad pun, (laughs) but man, it's, you can't do it. You can't compete with the big guys. You'll never be competitive. Nobody will pay that much. You can't operationalize your own system. And to hear those guys talk about it, I was like, well, that's interesting. That's a little synonymous. And it's a three-hour conversation. And by the time I got to the end of the conversation, I was like, man, these guys are like living rent-free in my head and they don't even know I exist. (laughs) And I I sent that podcast to Kara and I didn't say anything. And she listened to it. And she goes, hey, why would you send me that podcast? And I said, why do you think? And she goes, man, that's our story. I said, yeah, it is. And she goes, what do we do with that? I said, I think I'm going to reach out. And she just laughed at me. And she goes, well, that's cool. But how the hell is that going to work? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I'll figure it out. And, uh, you know, started making some connections and got on the phone with Brian uh, one of the co-founders of Jocko Fuel, uh, Brian Littlefield. I got on the phone with him in August of 22, maybe July of 22. Yeah, it was July. Sorry, it was late July. We had a conversation, and he visited the ranch in September, and we showed him the whole operation. And you know, we showed him the we showed him our place, and then we showed him the family ranch, which is a different entity. You know, we don't have any ownership stake in that. My father-in-law does what he does and we go help move cows when he needs it. And we showed him the feed yard because we took down our own feed yard in late 22. So literally as he was here, we were finalizing the deal on the feed yard, but that is the feed yard we fed at for four years already. So it was really just a paperwork thing and took him over to the harvest facility and brought him back. And he's like, 
It was like origin for cows. I was like, kind of. And by November of last year, uh, we basically had mission alignment in a way that was like, we're going to do this. Uh, and in August of this year, I think it was August 16th, uh, we bought the plant. Awesome. Awesome, so, man. That's exciting because it's, it's been nuts. It's been so crazy. Uh, and man, the amount of knowledge those guys have in the direct to consumer space uh. and the mission and the love for what we're all trying to accomplish. Um, mm-hmm. and, and to be clear, you know, it's, we are partnered with the individuals. I'm partnered. We're partnered with Jocko and Pete and Brian, uh, other guys on the team. Uh, Dr. Sean Baker is on our team. Uh, that guy, man, I owe him a debt of gratitude. Uh, you know, I've lost 80 pounds on the carnivore diet. I'm healthier than I've ever been. And I'm 41. Awesome. And all thanks to that guy pushing me over the ledge. And then he actually helped me find my health coach and just, you know, couldn't say enough good things about him. And then a bunch of guys that, you know, really love steak and work with Jocko. So other guys on the team, uh, Leif is on the team. Uh, Leif Babin, the co-owner of Extreme Ownership. Uh, good deal, Dave Burke came on. Uh, Chris Cavallini came on from Nutrition Solutions in Tampa. Uh, very, very solid guy. Uh, and then probably the funniest guy I've ever met, uh, Travis Mills, the mm-hmm. quad amputee from the 82nd Airborne that had one bad day in Afghanistan, you know, just, just the one when he, you know, <laughs> got blown up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And I only say that tongue in cheek because of how he talks about it. So anybody that wants to be upset, oh. please listen to Travis talk about himself. And when you meet the guy, you couldn't be more humble to have such a great human that's went through so much struggle. You're like, man, I'm a big old punk. Like I, I could not begin to deal with everything he's doing. And he does it with a smile. Dude, I love, I had this uh, previous company where we did, it was a CrossFit competition. We put people head to head for like a title belt in their weight class. But Mm -hmm. we added divisions that were people missing limbs because these were like high functioning athletes. Like my one armed above the elbow champion could climb a 15 foot rope five times in one minute. Like that's professional athlete skills. Yeah. But I loved hanging out with those guys because nobody is more irreverent about their amputee status than those guys. So it is so fun when you kind of get to that point where you're like, when you understand their cult, you know, their culture, so to say, because mm-hmm. they make so many people uncomfortable. <laughs> Dude, you will, uh, you will appreciate this. So uh, if you've, if you watch the launch video of our partnership with Jocko and the team, uh, that was shot at origin camp in Maine, literally the week after we closed, we closed on Wednesday and on Tuesday we were on a bird headed to Maine. Awesome. And that was pretty funny. Like on the way there, Kara looks at me and she goes, we're doing this. I was like, <laughs> we are. I said, uh, they might be at the airport with a gotcha sign, like ready to send us home. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And uh, we did the origin dinner, which you see in the video, which was just for their investors. We just sent beef up to it and happened to go hang. And uh, the next day, Travis came to camp. Um, He wasn't there that night. Apparently he had an engagement pop up and he comes up and Brian and I actually, this, this conversation in the video, it's me standing with Travis and I'm in my gi and it was right before Brian just whooped the shit out of me. But I, I was talking to Travis and, 
I, I said, he said something. I was like, oh, I got you, man. That makes sense. And he goes, man, you know what? I go, what's that? He goes, that's what the Taliban said. <laughs> and I stopped and I looked at Brian and Brian just shrugged at me. I was like, thanks, dude. That's super helpful. Yep. And I looked back and I was like, you know, salesmaning it off, right? Just kind of playing it. And I go, man, I stepped in a bear trap with that one. And Travis goes, dude, that's how they got my left leg. How the fuck did you know? Uh, and I, just, I just looked at Brian and he goes, don't engage, bro. He could do this for hours. That's funny. I was like, Roger that. Like, yeah. why don't you come choke me? That sounds more enjoyable. Yeah. And he couldn't have done it with more of a straight face. Like the delivery was perfect. It's like, that's I was awesome. just hysterical. Um, so funny. anybody looking for a, for good one-liners, go check out uh staff Sergeant Travis Mills on Instagram. Uh, he did a thing with his kids this summer that it was like, if he got 5,000 likes on like wrecking, wrecking his wife on the tube behind the boat, that they would then put him on a tube the next day. Oh my and, gosh. So that happens. And then like the next week, the the follow-up comes when they throw him off the tube. And for anybody that doesn't know, like his right arm is gone. Uh, both legs are amputated above the knee. And his left arm is, I think, above the elbow. It might be below the elbow. He had a bad day. Yeah. Don't set your backpack on a bomb is the rumor <laughs> of the lesson that he learned. And uh, in the video, this is the funniest joke I've ever heard. He goes, you know what you call an amputee in the lake? What, Bob. and and you just have to look at that and you're like you know my best day doesn't begin to compare it how that guy's doing it i want to be like that guy yeah i want to find that example and you know to that point that's that's what we're trying to do at the beef company that's why we make conversations with you guys or you know talk to other producers and try to help people to see where things land and it's been so much fun. You know, it's yeah. such an inclusive community for the most part. Uh, there's always outliers in every community. You know, like we're, we're uh, I wouldn't say tight, but we're, we're acquaintances with Andy Stumpf and watching the hate that guy catches from people or Tim Kennedy catching heat mm-hmm. or Black Rifle catching heat or even people that hate on Jocko. And I'm like, man, that's not a smart move. Mm-hmm. It's just bizarre. Um, but, you know, yeah, there's a, that's the the tinfoil hat version of the first amendment, right? Everybody can say what they want and it's a cool spot because we can do that. Right. Um, right. But that's yeah, it's cool. uh, so yeah. So in, in summary, you know, we, we own the entire supply chain stem to stern outside of mother cows. That's the one thing we don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have no plan to get that. And, you know, in the 50 or 60 podcast, I think I've said a couple of times, like there's no way to get me to own mother cows. There's just no math in the world that makes me want to do that. And yeah. that's, and that's no judgment on the people. I know a lot of guys that love their cows. That is their second family. And I respect the heck out of that Yeah, because at the end of the day, we need people eating beef. Right. And we well, need people to have an opportunity to choose. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I appreciate this conversation because, you know, I, I'm uh, helping stand up a processing plant with its own direct to consumer uh, future. And sure. what, what I want people to recognize in this conversation is that there's an abundance. And one of the things that gets in our way of being able to accomplish the goals that we're out to do in the ag space specifically, and, and even more specific American beef to American consumers is when people get into a mindset of scarcity. Like, yeah. 
there's so many consumers, like you were saying about feeding the, the college right there. That's, that's one tiny sector, tiny, tiny sector of all of that. And it's, that's, that alone can't be fulfilled. So there is plenty uh, for everyone. And yeah. it, that's why we've made it our mission. And I think I've, I kind of designed what we're doing um, with the app side because I wanted to support every producer I could and not have to be loyal to a brand. Just like mm-hmm. you said earlier, you know, people were ordering from you, they find somebody local, you're like, hell yeah, eat beef. That's what yeah. matters, you know? Well, even when we partnered with Dr. Baker, I called him, you know, I know him personally, I've been on his podcast four or five times, I've been to his house. Uh, he keeps asking me to go to jujitsu with him. Uh, luckily, the last time I was up there, uh, he had an injury. So I went <laughs> to his gym. I went to his gym without him and did Greg Anderson's podcast. But, you know, when he and I first talked, he's like, hey, man, I absolutely love to support you guys. How do we do this? And it never came up. But we never talked about it because I know his model. He mm-hmm. likes to support all ranchers. He does that for literally everybody. Yeah. And and like we get towards the end of stuff, uh, all the paperwork side, cause you can imagine the amount of lawyers that were involved with all of that paperwork. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, Hey, by the way, you know, we're asking everybody on the team if we can share that they're involved. And he goes, Oh, absolutely. And I was like, but Dr. Baker, I want to make this clear. I don't expect that you would not share other people's product because you support the industry and we support that. Yeah. And he goes, cool. Like it, we never even talked about it because we know each other. Yeah. Like I don't care who's sending Dr. Baker beef. I hope they're right. good people. Like actually when Rogan or when Dr. Baker was on Rogan a couple of weeks ago, uh, he mentioned us and he mentioned, I think it's McCaffrey ranch yeah. up mm-hmm. in Montana. I've never heard of those guys. Um, I've known about fodder as a feeding system for like a decade now. Cause they use it a lot in like the deer industry up in like oh, Michigan. I didn't know that. So a lot of those guys that grow trophy deer to then sell to you, you know, big non-typicals or whatever, they love fodder feeding. Hmm. That's the first time I saw it. it was like in 2013. I've always thought it would be really cool. It's just at scale. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, I heard them get called out and it, Dr. Baker's like, yeah, they do this barley growing thing. I was like, that's fodder. I think I called them up like the next day, just yeah. called the number on their website. I was like, yeah. Hey, you guys are crushing it. Great job. And they're like, man, that's awesome. You know, we got so many orders. I was like, that's outstanding. You know, Hey, if you guys ever need any help, she's like, yeah, the shipping costs are killing us. I said, what are you doing? I said, as you scale, call me. I have different people in the system. I can help you with shipping. Um, You know, let's talk about where you get your boxes. Let me help you with some of that because I mean, they're in Montana. They're already behind the eight ball from a shipping standpoint. Um, Yep. You know, you're far from people that gets expensive. You know, Mm -hmm. I said, if you need help, call me. And I don't say that like as a consultant, Hey, I'm going to charge you. The number of people I've talked to in the beef space is probably up into the hundreds that are direct competitors if we wanted to have that mindset. Right. But in, or you can say they're my brothers and sisters in agriculture and I'd love to help them out. Exactly. And that's what has to happen because agriculture is under direct attack by certain organizations in the world. And and let's point, let's point this out. Non-ironically, it's under attack by people that are eating every day. Yeah. And they're eating the same stuff. They don't want you to eat. Yeah. That's so bizarre to me. Yeah. Yeah. Man. So what is your, uh, what does your guys's model look like? Are you a subscription based company? Are you all a cart? How do, when people go to Colorado craft beef to buy what, what's the offering there that they can expect when they see that? 
Sure. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to marketing this up for you a little bit. Yeah. Great. So our company name, Colorado craft beef, you know, what is craft beef? How do we craft blah, 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 blah. Man, it is craftsmanship stem to stern. So we are selecting cattle. We are dictating health protocols. Uh, we recently implemented a genomic testing where we're taking ear punches on all the cattle to do full DNA panels on these cattle to see who's going to finish, when they're going to be ready, so we can optimize their life cycle. We are then crafting ingredients, working through all the different stuff we can do, um, and then working to get 21-day dry aging, all the different things we need to do. And if you look at the website, we have a lot of different packages you can buy. Uh, You can subscribe to be once a month, once every two months, once every three months. But while I say that, when's this episode going to drop? Not next Monday, but the following. So I believe that would be the 18th. So you're barely going to miss Christmas, Brooks. I mean, come on, man. (laughs) You want to drop it on? Just a little too. We can can rush this one. (laughs) I'll let you guys figure that out. I'm I'm not worried about it. Um, Probably by the end of the year, as you guys know, building websites is not simple. Uh, We've been working on a new website since September. Uh, We are hoping to drop it during the Christmas break. And that is going to be the next next level of offerings for our customers where they can do a la carte. They can add a la carte to existing bundles and they can choose their own subscription model. So we're trying to take that craft concept literally from the beginning of the cattle through the customer shipping experience to allow people to do what works for them. Um, We do a lot of one-off orders. We do a fair amount of subscriptions. Um, But I think, you know, if I had any recommendation for any producer, ask the customer what they want. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people in the space that say, my operation allows me to do it like this. Okay, that's fair. But is the customer wanting to buy that? Right. Um, To a a lot of the producers that only do halves and holes, that's good. Understand that's going to minimize your ability to grow because your market segment is smaller. And as my old sales manager used to tell me, you're trying to sell stuff to somebody that already has something. Mm. The odds of somebody that already buys a half a beef wanting to switch their producer is low. That's true. Yeah. And, and if they've never had your product, do they want to drop 2000 bucks and then wonder if it's good? Yeah. You have to find a way to make the customer engage. Yeah. It's not the other way around. Um, there's a lot of people in the ag space. Uh, it's very interesting. My wife and I have talked about this a lot. Our customer is our hero. Whoever's eating beef is our hero. That mm-hmm. is the goal. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I think a lot of the people in the ag space, especially on the direct-to-consumer side, want to be the hero of their own story. And they want to talk about what they do, not what the customer wants to see not what the customer wants to engage with. Um, So we have to be careful with some of that messaging, how we want to do that. So, you know, that is the the model is a lot of customizability to the greatest extent we can do it, Mm -hmm. um, especially on the purchasing side, because, man, I cannot begin to figure out customer purchasing habits. (laughs) They're all over the place. They can change with every media posts. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. But most of those consumers too, to your point, they don't live in a place where they can have a deep freeze. I mean, mm-hmm. when we talk mouths to feed, we're talking urban environment, probably in an apartment 
a condo or something. And the idea of having a deep freeze that holds, you know, even a quarter of a beef, half a beef just isn't, isn't going to work for them. So the ability to send them smaller packages that they can move through on a weekly or monthly basis is a lot more. um, It it gives you a lot more access to more customers. And well, and, and then think about if you're in a high rise in downtown Chicago, how are, how are you packaging that to make it easier for them? Right. They can take the beef out and think it's beautiful, put it in their freezer, but if they have a mess, Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of packaging you're using is a biodegradable. Can they dispose of it easily? You know, like we use a packaging um, that you've probably seen AJ it's green cell foam. Yeah. But you put it in the sink and you wash it down the drain. Yeah. The cornstarch. Yep. Yeah. It's made out of corn fibers. It's totally biodegradable, very industry safe. But now if you're in a downtown high res in Chicago, you don't need to figure out what to do with this stupid box that won't fit down the trash chute. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's thinking about all those customer interactions. You know, yeah. it's like I, I talked to a guy one time that owned a car dealership. I bought a pickup from him and the sales experience was outstanding. And of course we're ranchers, right? You have to add the, you have to add the uh, fifth wheel or the gooseneck hitch. You have to add the plugins for all the brakes in the, in the beds, so you don't tear cords off. And the service department was abysmal. Mm. And I went to my buddy that owned the shop. I was like, bro, come here. I was like, your sales experience, the deal we made was top notch. My after purchase experience makes me not want to come back. I said, you need to realize that if the service department operates poorly, that's your largest amount of customer contact. You see 40, 50, 80 customers a day come through there. And if they have a bad experience, they'll never buy a car from you. So understand your touch points and how to connect that. So that's what we did. You know, is the website easy? Can people do what they want? Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, can they ask questions? You know, our email and phone numbers right on the website. Um, And a lot of times when we have any sort of an issue, we call directly. Um, You know, we got our very first employees, uh, full-time employees this year. We've never had full-time employees until this point. Uh, So it was pretty fun. You know, three years ago during COVID, people like, hey, you're people that packed my box. I'm like, what can I do for you? Because you're talking to them. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like, I was, I was feeding cows this morning and packing boxes this afternoon and I got to run QuickBooks in two hours. What can I do for you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And that's so, the thing that producers that want to sell direct, they've got to understand that if you really want to make a go of it, there, it's not going to be convenient. You mm-hmm. are, you know, you are going to have, like you said, if you quarter halves and holes, okay. If you're a small operation, that's probably going to work for you. But if you're Mm -hmm. trying to increase the number of head that you're selling every year, you're going to have to get down into the weeds and really speak to the customer and what their needs are. And just know you're going to take on more, more work. You're going to take on sourcing the boxes and the, and the insulation and figuring out dry ice or whatever your cold pack solutions are and how far it's going to go. It's, it's there's a lot more to it. It can be worth it if you're willing to do that. Or, or, you know, in some cases, if you have, younger generation around that's old enough to handle certain aspects of it. You know, that's, that's one thing I tell producers that have older kids that want to be a part of it, give them a job, Mm. give them, give them something to do in the enterprise. Okay. You want to be working on the ranch? Well, it'd be great to sell direct. Why don't you start the direct market side and 
create those jobs that can bring in that revenue so that that next generation can take over and, and keep that operation going. But mm-hmm. it's not, it's not easy. And that's where a lot of guys I think are starting to, they'll do it for a few years and be like, Oh, holy hell. And then it'd be better to sell into a, a co-op, an aggregate co-op where mm-hmm. you're like a CSA plant program or, yep. and those options are all out there right. and those guys are trying to grow. Um, yeah. You know, there was a gentleman at the meeting uh, at the food summit yesterday for CSU that said, I need to understand what form factor everybody wants my product in. And I pulled him aside. I was like, why don't you know that? He goes, well, there's nowhere to find it. I said, go ask them, mm-hmm. man. I don't know if I have time. I said, I, I don't know what to say to that man. Like if you want to be direct there, you have to do it. Like there's yeah. no other way. And the nice thing is, Anybody that wants to be a numbers nerd, what's really cool is when you start watching your sales go up while at the same time, you're buying more boxes, you're buying more insulators. Now your costs go down. Yeah. So understand that that rainbow does get better, but you have to do the work. Yeah. No, our, that's one thing, you know, luckily we've been scaling at the right time and our, our prices on cattle, as you know, are higher than they've ever been in the history of that mm-hmm. company. But luckily we're buying enough boxes and buying enough insulators and moving enough product that employees aren't breaking the bank. Um, you know, purchasing the harvest facility helped a lot because now we can control our own destiny. Um, we can get a little more creative. So for the first time ever, we cut some tomahawks out. Um, but you've got to be able to move things and you've got to be nimble and you are going to get kicked in the teeth. Yeah. You are going to have bad days. Yep. You are going to have failures by FedEx and UPS. There's no way around that. Um, what would you have say? <laughs> prioritize good. and execute, I, I think. Or he would good. say good. <laughs> yeah. 100%. So, you know, just it, it's a grind. It's a lot of fun. Um Cool. And for all those people that say we do it because we love it, I respect the heck out of that. We love it too. Yeah. You know, we've, we have almost 30 employees now and we are very excited to provide for them. This is, this is no longer about Kara and I, mm, yep. this is no longer about what we wanted. Yeah. What we're doing impacts other people and that ownership to quote another, another guy we just mentioned is something we'll never falter on and the ability to support those families and let people grow, like watching some of the team members at the harvest facility. So to, to, this is probably the coolest move in my whole career out of all the weird stuff I had to do. We took over the harvest facility on Wednesday. We signed the papers at five o'clock Wednesday night. Everybody was fired at five o'clock to a rehired by the new company at five Oh one. We didn't miss a day. We didn't miss a slot everybody kept rolling. None of the, we had, we had producers that harvested our facility. Again, direct competitors to us. No factor. We're here to help people. Yep. And they harvested our facility. They didn't know we bought it until we called them three weeks later. <laughs> and I called them. I was like, Hey, you know, one guy in particular, he's a great guy. So he was actually at the CSU meeting yesterday. And I was like, Hey man, how's it going? He's like, good. What, what's up? I said, Hey, I wanted you to hear, you know, this is what happened. We, we now control the kill facility. This is what's going on. He's like, okay. I said, I need you to understand. I have no intention of impacting your business negatively. And he goes, cool. Works for me. 
And that was in September. And the first time I saw him was yesterday. And he goes, Hey, I got some, some strategy stuff. I want to talk to you about after the first of the year. He's like, I I think I've got some expansion. I want to make sure I can, you know, help coordinate this so that we can all go forward. That's awesome. That's the point of all of this. When your competitor who's now your customer, who's still your brother in agriculture, because he's a cow guy that lives three hours South of us wants to collaborate, even though his business is in direct competition. Yep. And that's one of the things we're looking at with our harvest facility is, you know, we have a finite amount of space. It's a relatively small spot um, in the grand scheme of things. Okay. How do we add shackle space? Because I don't want to start cutting off our neighbors or detonating the local market because that is a economic resource for the community aside from employment, aside from whatever, how do we make this as good for as many people as we can while still running a business? And that mindset, uh, it sounds pie in the sky. Maybe it sounds, you know, like a little too hunger games ish, (laughs) (laughs) but dang it, man, if we're not working on that, what are we doing? Uh, and that was one of the conversations I had with CSU yesterday. I said, you know, you guys are wanting to help the small guy while supporting JBS because they're right down the road and they paid for your new meat plant. I understand the polit- the politics you're dealing with. But you want to help the guy to get into food service that has 100 cows. He can't do that every year. Mm-hmm. How do we aggregate? How do we start to put things together so we can help the system without being a part of the big system? Right. And one of the CSU professors I know really well looked at me and she's like, we need to talk. And we're speaking at the range beef cow symposium in Colorado next week. And it's going to be much the same message. I think there's gonna be 500 cow calf producers there and we're on a panel and then a part of a big breakout session talking about strictly the business of direct to consumer. Yeah. And, uh, Dr. Thilmany, uh, who's one of my capstone professors at CSU is one of the other panelists and she's like, you guys are on the panel? Yeah. She goes, man, I don't have to bone up for that much. She goes, you guys know the economics of that better than I do. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, That's but cool. man, it takes, it takes a network. Yeah. You know, it takes a shared mindset. Yeah. You know, our, our harvest facility couldn't feed Denver. If every, if every shackle spot was reserved for Denver, I couldn't do it. Yeah. Well, it's, Utah beef producers is a 200 head a day possible facility. Uh, mm-hmm. That's if it's just going to grind. So you're not, you know, the labor time. Yep. Even then, if we only harvested and sold in Utah, we're only, we're only serving a hundred thousand people, 10 ounces a day. Yeah. There's no way we need a lot more. We used to have 10,000 slaughterhouses, I think in, in like the two early two thousands nationwide, small, facilities we're down Mm -hmm. to 2500 and you know the 85 percent that is controlled by the big four i was doing some research and from what i could find they only have a collective 20 facilities yeah but they're killing six thousand. right (laughs) right it's just that's just the vulnerability of our chain and that's where rising tides raise lifts all boats and that's what you guys are doing and that's what we're doing and and i think it's our communities are better off because new new ideas on how to do this like what you guys are doing is starting to make its way around the country and it's starting to it's starting to build that resiliency that we need as a nation for our food supply chain so that's great yeah and well the natural hesitancy of agricultural producers 
Um, this is something that I, I've talked about on non-ag podcasts quite a lot. Um, you know, the general profitability of agriculture from mid-70s to the mid-2010s went from $0.35 cents per dollar invested to $0.14 cents per dollar invested. So when you talk to my father-in-law who ran through that whole period, he sees the steady decline of his profit. Mm. It's hard to be optimistic. It really is. Or if you're a guy starting out and you've been in it a short amount of time, it's hard to be optimistic. It's hard to want to be collaborative because you do see how cutthroat it is. But you have to you have to rise above that. Yeah. And you have to go talk to other producers and you have to get a, a good concept of what's going on to really strengthen the industry, mm-hmm. not strengthen yourself, but you know, and, and I know there was a lot of natural hesitation in our region when it became known that CCB purchased the facility. Sure. I mean, it's, but, it, yeah. well, the, fir- the first reaction, everybody's, they're not going to harvest cattle for anybody else. Yeah. I'm like, uh, you know, if I could scale overnight like that, I wouldn't be in the cow business. I'd be working <laughs> on wall street and I'd be on a boat somewhere. Right. Um, but we've had to show people that's not our mindset. We've had to show them that's not the mission. You know, American manufacturing is the mission. American yeah. beef is the mission. Um, more food to more people and more places is the mission. Yeah. My beef, your beef, or otherwise. Um, Feed so I just, I hope, the people by the people. You know, somebody should trademark that. Probably put on a shirt. Yeah, we should. Dang, where's those damn shirts at? <laughs> hey, uh, I actually have an army vet that we're doing shirts with. It's out of the Carolinas. Oh, very high quality stuff, dude. I'm happy to connect you with him. He's Send him my way. Dude. I'm looking yeah. for that right now. It's been way too long in the making and I've just been looking for a good person to work with. So that'd be great. Uh, they were referred to me by some of our new partners. So they were vetted before I got them and Perfect. We, I got you. <laughs> awesome. So Jeff, how can uh, people, what, what can people do to engage with you? How can they find you? Uh, obviously coloradocraftbeef.com. What, what other ways can they get engaged with what you guys are up to? Uh, you know, social media is always prominent. Uh, we're working on some more YouTube stuff. Uh, that's always a slow grind. Uh, there's just only so many hours in the day. Um, social media is usually the best. Uh, you can do info at Colorado craft beef. You usually like to send a direct question. You can send DMS on Instagram is probably the best way to go. Uh, and then the phone number for the company is right on the website and that phone's sitting, you know, just right here plugged into my computer. So Perfect. Are you on yeah. uh, TikTok? Because I've been tagging you there, so I hope you are. <laughs> we we are on TikTok. I believe I have one post on TikTok. Um, we're working on that too. Let um, me tell you something. First of all, it is a pain in the ass handling all these different outlets, but at least it's not the price tag of having to do a c- commercial TV spot. But I did a video recently on TikTok like four days ago, and I'm like, I'm you know, that's where all the liberals are. So I'm going to get hammered with this conversation. Dude, let's be I fair, was, AJ, you probably do that out of sheer enjoyment to some sort of dark level. Yeah. Especially when I throw my tinfoil hat on, but I'm telling you, I did not get what I thought I was going to get. I'm a little mm-hmm. disappointed that I couldn't fight more people. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling you probably 99.9% of it was all positive support. And nice. 20,000 new followers, like 
I was very impressed with the results of TikTok. So anyway, you got a few messages on there, I'm sure. So when uh-huh, you visit the TikTok it. again. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's man, there's there's so much time, space and effort to be used on that. And, you know, to the uh, to the business conversation, it's, you know, prioritize and execute. Um, mm-hmm. But Brooks, you you forgot our, our parting point, you know, doing more with less. So do it to my, it. Yeah, my my thought on regenerative. So I am not sure of the actual definition of regenerative. It's not my wheelhouse. I think it's I, I've actually jokingly called regenerative sustainable 2.0 <laughs> and and sustainable was natural 2.0. Like we, oh, yeah. the industry drives these random terms that mean something so different everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Now on the, you know, to take Will Harris's example of where his farm was and he regenerated it to what it is now, like that video that's so popular with the water. Yep. Man, mm-hmm. that, that speaks for itself. That's outstanding. Um, man, we've literally had the same grass and the same pastures for going on 80 years since anybody farmed anything out here, 60 years. Um, I don't, I don't know that we are regenerative, you know, we are grain finishing, mm-hmm. um, but we're doing it in a way that is different than commodity beef. Yeah. Um, you know, the way I describe what we do is if you take all the grass finished opportunity with the potential to optimize that the big guys try to use, we try to land in the middle. How do we get a high quality steakhouse level quality steak that somebody can be like, man, this filet is just like what I had at Capitol Grill while having the least amount of impact possible. And that's really where we land. Um, and to be clear, we don't use any added hormones. I know we didn't talk about that. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah, that would be a question for sure. Yeah, for sure. And that's something that we've found is unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, there's a cool case study. We we're watching that. It's not really a case study. It's observations from the patio while drinking a beer in the summer. But (laughs) um, we've actually seen some better cattle results watching that amongst us and some of our neighbors. And we could talk about some of that offline or maybe put it on another episode. Cool. But for anybody that wants to really hammer regenerative, I respect that. I think the concept of it is perfect. But first, go look at what we're producing compared to 40 years ago. Mm. Look at the water usage. Look at the amount of feed usage. I think water usage in the dairy sector in the last four decades is down like 70%. Mm. So before we say the whole system needs the Band-Aid ripped off, let's look at the trend first. And I'm not defending anything, but mm-hmm. I am saying that in a lot of the, a lot of what I've looked at, you know, uh, fuel use, total inputs, like all that stuff is being driven down. Um, some of it by chemicals, some of it by GMOs, some of it by stuff we shouldn't probably be using, right? Yep. So we need to understand that whole picture. But what I tell a lot of my business clients is, you know, if they said, man, the bit today was horrible. I'm like, yeah, but what's the trend? What's the trend of the last 60 days? Is it up or is it down? Um, and while I love the idea of regenerative and I definitely support, I mean, a story like Will's, you can't argue that. That's outstanding. A story like RC's, that cardboard comment he talks about with the bugs, and that's cool. Mm-hmm. Man, I love the heck out of that. But if we don't look back 40 years and we just assume the system is broken, you don't really know what needs fixed. Um, so some of that is really cool. 
And then yeah. the last thing I'll leave you with, and this is a really fun data point that I love to throw out there. 83% of the food in the United States is produced by families. Regardless of the system, because some of these families produce for big pork producers or something else, mm-hmm. but most of it is still family raised. Right. So I think there's, there's a big groundswell of that coming out. I just love to put that on the forefront of everybody's mind. Yeah. Appreciate that. Jeff, this has been one of the most thorough harmonizations of the micro and the macro. When we talk about the food supply chain that I've ever had the privilege of just like being a witness to. So thank you for your knowledge, your wisdom. Uh, uh, you brought it today, dude, that was really wonderful, uh, as a spectator. So thank you for that. It's that, it's that Jocko fuel and Jocko milk. I've been drinking (laughs) the whole time of double fisting the, uh, the brand products that to be clear, I still had to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're not partnered with the company. You're partnered with the guy. <laughs> I, I partnered with the guy. And, uh, if you guys had did not see the Thanksgiving launch, Jocko Molk has a sweet cream coffee that is 95 milligrams of caffeine. And I don't know how many of those I'm about to buy, but on the drop day, I bought five cases. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So anybody has any more questions, any of your listeners, man, reach out. Uh, man, if we need to do a follow-up, AJ, if people say, Hey, we want you to ask this guy these questions, but we don't want him to answer in a vacuum. I'm down. Let's get it done. I think the next thing we should do is an Instagram live because then we can reach people real time and answer a lot of questions. So let's plan for that. We did a YouTube live with Dr. Baker when I was out there in September, man, like the second it went live, there's like 400 people. Awesome. I was like, wow. Uh, but Hey man, I know you are, you're, I know you're getting close to firing up the plant you're working on. If you want to come take a look at ours, you're always welcome. Great. Um, you know, fly into Denver, I'll pick you up. There's a legit taco spot right by the airport. And we'll nice. Make a loop. Go to the jujitsu gym on the way back. So, I've never even been in one. Brooks Don't is. Worry. We got some guys. <laughs> yeah, that's more. Awesome. Yeah, that's definitely my wheelhouse. I'll, I'd love to take you up on that if we uh, find myself out in Denver. And that's actually how I don't really know Jocko, but one of my friends is one of the head coaches at Victory. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, and so shout out Eric Urisk if you, if you listen to this, buddy. You're one of the baddest dudes on the planet. Um, yeah, so uh, cool. while we're here, let's say thank you to some of our producers, AJ, as we close this show out. What do you say? Well, first of all, big shout out to Utah Beef Producers. They have been the first producer of the show to put their time, their talent, and their treasure to their best use possible. And so we thank our treasure donors today. If you are listening to this show, we've had a couple of interviews. We promise that next time it's just me and AJ and Brooke and we don't have a special guest. We will get to some clips. We'll get to some news du jour. I'll bust out my uh, uh, all my sound effects and whizzes and bangs. We'll play bop or flop again. And so if you're interested in donating your time, you can listen to the show. You can share it with a friend. You can rate it five stars. Please, please, please donate your time by making this your favorite show. We'd love it if you introduced us to a hundred of your best friends. We would love, love, love to get this show out and to educate people on the importance and the nuance of the agricultural and the food supply chain. And if you have any talent that you'd love to donate, you can do so by emailing me at brooks at seriousfund.io. And we look forward to catching up with you around probably episode eight. We got a couple of interviews lined up. So we'll be, be uh, bringing the heat around episode eight. Jeff, thank you again. We had a really great time. This is a wonderful interview, and I know the listeners are going to get a ton of value. So thank you to Jeff. Thanks for having me. 
AJ, you and I, my man, will be catching up in the great Las Vegas, Nevada next week. We're going to have an interview with the Josie Young of 10X Farm and Ranch. Look forward to that. And I will see everybody next week for episode eight of the Feed the People podcast. See you there. <laughs>